Chris, welcome to episode 238 of X-Lapsed, or I guess we can call it uh, Lapsed Annihilation, episode 3. Whatever the case, uh, today is a kind of a low-key celebration. Uh, it's not the one-year anniversary of the show, but this is one year of uh, daily podcast content from uh, the Chris and Reggie channel, which is uh, something I, 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 you know, I didn't plan to do from the start, but... You know, when we got a few months into it, I was like, hey, I wonder if I can do that. And uh, barring me getting hit by lightning before I upload this, it looks like we did. So uh, how about that? Though, as I'm known to say, uh, this and a couple bucks might get me a uh, cup of coffee at McDonald's. But uh, hey, it's still something I can say that I did. Uh, Now, let's get into the issue here, because we do have a little bit to talk about. This is Sword, Volume 2, Number 7. Had a September 2021 cover date. The story is called Full Spectrum Diplomacy. And of course, this is part of Last Annihilation. Written by Al Ewing with art by Stefano Caselli. Colors by Proto Bunkers Fur Sifuente Suho. Hmm, that's, that's a new one. Letters, VCs Ariana Mar, designs Tom Muller, head of Exus Hickman. Edits, Bisa White Sabolski, cover price $4. This one went on sale July 28 of 2021. Now, we open with uh, one of those really obnoxious emergency text pages that sometimes we get in these uh, these spacey books here. Now, it's basically recapping the events of Guardians of the Galaxy number 16 with some stuff that we haven't yet seen. And uh, in case you haven't read or listened to that one, here's, uh, here's a quick and dirty. We've got us an 8x8 emergency. And, I mean, this it looks like a monitor on a, you know, on a uh, spacecraft's console where... You know, these messages are just coming in hot and heavy, right? So an 8x8 emergency, there's been an attack on Throne World 2, which we did see. Emperor Hulkling has responded, which we did see. Uh, L'Oreal the Accuser, whoever that is, has responded. The planet Skrullos is also under threat. Wiccan and the Knights of the Infinite are headed there. The Guardians of the Galaxy were notified and have responded. The Galactic Council has been notified and they've responded. Earth has been notified, but has not yet responded, and Alpha Flight is nowhere to be found. Uh, I wonder if anybody bothered to check Canada. Um, Finally, we have Mindless Ones incoming, which, of course, we have seen. Now let's get into comics here. Uh, We've got Captain Glory arriving on the scene, and uh, remember, he was sprung from a cell in the closing panels of the Guardians issue. Brainiac 5 then gives a bit of a recap for those of us who didn't pick up the Guardians of the Galaxy issue. Wait, that's not Brainiac 5? Huh. Yeah, could have fooled me. Uh, it's Hulkling, by the way, uh, just not nearly as hulking as I'm used to seeing him. So after recapping, he informs Captain Glory about the Mindless Ones, Dormammu, and all this nonsense. 
Glory suggests that, even though Earth nor Alpha Flight have yet responded, that the Emperor ought to keep trying to find someone willing to help from Earth. And I mean, there's only like 8 million superheroes there, right? So you're bound to get somebody eventually. Just then, another wave of mindless ones start popping out of portals. Hulkling orders his consorts to report this to L'Oreal, uh, because she's worth it or something? I, I don't know. Double-page spread of roll call and cred, and uh, this is, of course, a sword book, so we've got our characters in little colored boxes here. So we've got Storm in a gold box, or a gold-bordered box, we should say. Brand in green, Manifold in red, Pybok, Frenzy, Hulkling, and Captain Glory all in light blue, Korra in like a lime green, and Doctor Doom in black. Back to comics, and we're on planet Araco for a diplomatic dinner between Storm and Doctor Doom. Now, as they chat, they actually call back to that Doctor Doom arcade team-up and that, you know, that one that John Byrne threw a tissy fit over way back in Uncanny X-Men 145 through 147. That's a May through July 1981 cover date. Uh, in that story, Byrne didn't like the way that Doom was portrayed. Arcade struck a match on his armor or something, and so in Fantastic Four 258... September 1983 cover date, two years later, he retconned it so it was a Doombot instead of the man himself. Uh, now, Byrne was ticked off at the way that uh, Doom was portrayed, and he was also probably trying to get under the skin of Chris Claremont, and uh, hey, he probably did. Anyway, yes, they call back to this here, which, again, is a story that's more famous for its meta elements than what actually happened in the book. I mean, no cheating. Can anybody out there tell me what happened in that story? Outside of Arcade striking a match on Doom's shoulder? I, I know I sure can't. Um, maybe when we hit Essential X-Lapsed episode 250 or something, maybe then we'll know. Anyway, Doom flirts a little bit, claiming that Storm, as a goddess, is worthy to rule Mars. He says that she is more fitting a queen rather than just being the wife of a king. Now, this is a reference to when she was married to T'Challa back in the mid-2000s. Storm takes a little bit of offense and calls Doom out for his recent marriage foibles. And this is referring to the Bride of Doom arc that just wrapped up in Fantastic Four, Volume 6, Number 34. And I'm not sure if anybody would mind if I spoiled it, but just in case, I won't. Because I know uh, you might expect X-Men story bits here, but you may be saving Fantastic Four for, uh, for a later read, and you wouldn't expect me to spoil that, so I, I won't. Uh, Doom's all touche, and suggests that they just get down to business, and of course that business is Mysterium. But first, how about we get back to the battle? Let's do that here. And, uh, well, it's a battle. Uh, not much more to say about it. Uh, that is, until a pair of giant mindless ones pop out of a pair of portals to blast the bejesus out of Captain Glory. And it's kind of in the vein of the, you know, Uncanny X-Men 142 cover, where a sentinel's deep-frying Wolverine, only there are two baddies here, and, uh... It ain't Wolverine, and it ain't a Sentinel, and you, you get what I'm trying to say, I, at least I hope so. Uh, Hulkling is then backed by a crew of Knights of the Infinite, but, uh, well, that fight ain't going all that well either, and the Emperor's blade is even shattered in the fracas. Let's get back to dinner. Well, uh, dessert, actually. Um, Doom and Aurora, uh, they enjoy some cream puffs, and... I don't know, some colorful marshmallows on a skewer? Uh, I, I apologize. Although I do spend a lot of time in the kitchen, I'm still not a very cultured fellow, so I'm assuming that these are kind of a hoi polloi sweets here that I just don't know much about. Uh, it's worth noting here that Doom, his mask has like a little, 
like a trap door where the mouth is, and it's kind of retracted to allow him to eat. I don't know that I've ever seen that before, but it's uh, it's pretty neat. I, I kind of dig it. Anyway, now Doom calls the mutants out for claiming magic to be technology or to conf- or confusing uh, ma- magic for technology, as in they're taking credit for creating something, in this case Mysterium, which has always existed just not in our reality. And of course, we did see, like, Manifold and the rest going through, uh, you know, going through reality to find these clumps of Mysterium, whatever it actually is. Now, he suggests that the mutants are a little bit out of their, uh, well, no pun intended, out of their element. Now, he states that there are uh, those out there with more of a grasp and control over magic, and uh, maybe the Krakoans should uh, stay in their own lane. He mentions Kerbons, which uh, I think is the technical term for things that emit Kirby Crackle. You know, it's K-I-R-B-O-N-S, Kerbons. Um, he also mentions the Above Place, which I think is a reference to something from Ewing's Immortal Hulk. And also the White Hot Room, which still baffles the bejesus out of me. I know it's Phoenix-related, but that's about all I could say with confidence. I know I read the stories that Morrison put together with the White Hot Room, but... Boy, uh, gun to my head, I couldn't tell you exactly what it was. Now, Doom says that the mutants doing the Mysterium thing might lead to some bad juju. And in fact, perhaps that juju is already here. Just then, Storm gets a psychic call via Mentalo from Abigail Brand. And it's all about the last Annihilation hoodoo that we're seeing. And it looks like the battle has spread to a bunch of different planets and galaxies, including Spartax, the Shi'ar, though Sol, our galaxy, hasn't been hit just yet. Now, Brand tells Storm that they might need to inform the Great Ring of all the goings-on, and of course the Great Ring is the Quiet Council uh, analog of Arako. Back to the dinner scene where Doom is uh, kind of coy about, uh, well, he, he, he knows everything that Storm just learned. He's already known everything because Doom knows everything. And uh, so he makes her an offer to assist here. Doom will help Arako and Storm, but that would leave Arako in Doom's debt. Storm calmly and rationally strikes the small dinner table with lightning and tells Doom to go eat a bag. Doom brushes himself off and calls out the Weather Witch on her lack of decorum. Let's shift scenes over to Hala, uh, the throne world. Sword arrives to rescue Emperor Hulkling, and they exchange some words about how lame Alpha Flight is, with Brand saying that their lameness is what caused her to create something better in Sword. It also turns out that uh, Brand blocked Hulkling's call to Alpha Flight so that she and Sword could, you know, look like heroes and cozy up with the Kree-Skrull alliance to uh, put Krakoa in a better political position. Manifold offers to open a portal under the injured Hulkling that would deliver him to a waiting hospital bed. Before he does, however, Hulkling mentions that, uh, well, he tried to reach out to the Scarlet Witch for some magical aid, but she hasn't responded. And he suggests that Dormammu is probably blocking her, to which Abigail's all, uh, yeah, that that must be it, kid. Uh, Yeah, no further questions. That's gotta be it. You got it in one. Uh, Just then, more mindless ones appear. Manifold sets to sending Hulkling to safety uh, as the green guy asks why the Avengers didn't come either. Well, that message was sent through Alpha Flight, and since Brand blocked it, the Avengers never got it. Manifold... Kind of suggests that uh, that dickhead Peter Gyrick probably just ignored it, which, I mean, considering that Gyrick is a dickhead, <laughs> isn't outside the realm of possibilities, is it? You can, you can get away with that. Uh, info page. Now, this is confirmation that Brand did block the message to Alpha Flight, and she also discusses her ultimate goal for S.W.O.R.D., 
Unfortunately for us, it's been redacted. Now we wrap up with Sword and the Knights of the Infinite fighting back the Hordes. Our coming soon page is all Last Annihilation related, and uh, we'll be covering most of the upcoming issues, including Guardians of the Galaxy number 17, Cable Reloaded number 1, and Guardians of the Galaxy number 18. There are a couple of one-shots here, a Wiccan and Hulkling and a Wakanda one-shot. Not sure if we'll be covering them. I'll have to rely on you all, anybody out there who is reading them, to let me know if they are relevant to our story here. I'm thinking maybe the Wiccan and Hulkling one might tie into the Scarlet Witch hoodoo. So you guys let me know, and we will uh, we will get them on the docket. But that is where we leave it for now. Next episode, we kick off two straight episodes of Wolverine. So next episode is our one-year anniversary of X-Lapsed, and Wolverine has somehow weaseled his way into yet another X-Lapsed milestone. So let's talk a little bit about this issue, and... Uh, I think this will only be a little bit, because uh, this was an issue of sort, of course, but it was definitely in service of the Last Annihilation um, arc, which stands to reason it is a tie-in issue. But as for our sword takeaways here, all this issue did for me was uh, make me dislike Abigail Brand a little bit more, which I didn't think was possible here. Uh, I came into this series fully expecting to hate this character, because I've always disliked this character. She, uh comes from the Bendis Snarkbot school, where I usually conflate her with characters like Maria Hill and uh, was it Victoria Hand, where they just seem like different shades of the same character, just a, a you know a snarky, sarcastic character who uh, is unquestionable, and everybody has to kind of go to them to uh, get their plans okayed. So that kind of annoyed me that we'd have, you know, uh, an alien invasion. I mean, this is Marvel, so of course there's alien invasions. And we'd have, like, Captain America and Iron Man kind of sitting on their hands waiting to hear from Maria Hill as to whether or not they're allowed to actually go out and save the world. You know, stuff like that. So I wasn't really looking forward to reading about Abigail Brand in this series. And then in our first few issues, she seemed kind of cool. You know, I came around to her pretty quick here where we see that she has, uh, you know, some philosophical differences with Krakoa and with Magneto in particular, where she's talking about, you know, she's thinking about the macro rather than the micro. She's thinking about the universe, the galaxy, rather than just a tiny island, or relatively speaking, on just one planet in the uh, solar system. So I thought her presentation was uh, pretty cool early on. But as we get to know her a little bit better, or as if we get as we get reacquainted with her, I should say, she's just irritating. All sass, snark, self-importance, probably other things that start with S's that I'm probably making a horrible sound when I talk into my microphone. <laughs> but uh, she's just unpleasant, and uh, she's a character who I want to see get her comeuppance now. But I don't think that's gonna come. I think we're supposed to be rooting for her. And uh, kind of cheering her sassiness, and uh, I just don't see it. Because at the end of the day, everything she's doing is right, you know? Um, it's like when you're in an argument with someone about a, uh, or not maybe not an argument, but a discussion where somebody takes a very, very firm position. Like, you can think about someone who's really into the environment here, and they'll, they'll, they'll give you lectures about all the things you should be doing. And at the end of the day, they're right. You know, in a lot of ways, they're right. But it's about the presentation of the information, right? It's like, I get everything you're saying, you're not wrong, you're just a jerk. <laughs> and that's kind of how I'm feeling with Abigail Brand here. 
All the things she's trying to do make sense from a Krakoan and a sword point of view here. She's trying to cozy up with the Kree-Skrull alliance. She's trying to better Krakoa's political standing in the greater universe rather than just on Earth with Mysterium. But she's still a jerk, and she's still someone I don't want to read about. And every time I see her on panel, I want her off panel. Now, speaking of off-panel, um, one of the things that uh, we've talked about with Marauders is the fact that the main cast of the book is fairly consistently off-panel. I mean, when do we see Bishop, Pyro, Iceman, even Call Me Kate? We don't see them very often. Here we've got Sword, which introduced us to a tremendous cast early on here, and all we're seeing is, Mar- is Maria Hill, no, is Abigail Brand. I mean, yes, Manifold is technically there, but he's not doing a whole heck of a lot. Uh, we don't we don't see Peeper. We don't see Wizkid. We don't see Frenzy. I mean, these characters. This is a fun team. This is a, I don't know if they're necessarily a team, but I mean, it's a fun cast for this book, and we're just not seeing them. Whether or not that has to do with uh, putting Abigail Brand front and center, or the fact that, I mean, this is issue number seven, and out of these seven issues, we've had two. That haven't been a part of a crossover I mean, it's a, it's a toughie And, I, you know, it's going to be interesting to see How this gets collected Because I don't know how you read this thing without the context uh, To give someone a trade paperback collection Of the first five issues or six issues of this book I don't know that you can do that It's like you're going to have to have appendices, you know with like a, I mean, if we think that the info pages are ridiculous now We're going to need full info pages to let people know what what happened at the Hellfire Gala? What happened during uh, The King in Black? And now what happens in uh, Last Annihilation? It's going to be a toughie, and I'm sure they're going to put it out. I'm sure there's going to be a trade collection, so uh, I guess I'll have to rely on, on you all to let me know how they, uh, how they assemble this thing. What else we got here? Um, the battle, the Last Annihilation battle here with Hulkling and uh, the Knights of the Infinite fighting off the Mindless Ones, that was fine. You know, it was a it was a story beat. I don't think that was me- meant to be the main story of the issue here. Uh, this is still an issue of sword, and we do get plenty of uh, of sword stuff here. Um, Captain Glory, I I don't know if he's dead. He might have died in this issue. I don't know. Um, that wasn't entirely clear. Maybe we'll have to wait until the next part to see exactly what his fate is. Um, we should probably talk about Doom and Storm and their little uh, dinner here, which. Uh, you know, it, it feels like a scene that if you were to like write jot it down on a, on a napkin, it's like okay, we've got Storm, the you know Emperor of the Universe, the Queen of Mars, having a diplomatic dinner with Doctor Doom. It's like wow, that sounds really cool. That sounds like something that'd be really fun to read about. And uh, it was okay, but I don't know. It just it felt kind of empty to me. Um, I mean, these characters do have a little bit of a history, of course. But I felt like we were getting a little bit too much of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge with the whole arcade striking a match off of him thing. I feel like that's just been... That might be up there now with, like, Kitty Pride being scared of Storm's mohawk. With, like, okay, well, we're going to mention this because it's it's a little obscure. And it gets a pop out of our, uh, you know, the fake-ass comics historians among us. So, I, I don't know. I don't know that's a, if that's a valid observation or not, but... uh I just came away from it feeling a little bit like, eh, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do? Um, the art here was pretty fantastic. Stefano Caselli has always put in really good work, so it was nice to see him here. 
And overall, I'm uh, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing where The Last Annihilation takes us here. And definitely, if uh, if anybody out there is reading the one-shots, please let me know if that's uh, stuff that we should be covering on the show. I'm wondering if the Hulkling and Wiccan uh, one-shot will have uh, them discovering that the Scarlet Witch is uh, dead for the moment. So let me know, and we will uh, throw it on the docket. But I think that's all I have to say about this issue. But before we get out of here, let's hop into the mailbag. And we're going to kick things off with Meal, who, as uh, luck would have it, is discussing S.W.O.R.D. today. Now, Meal says, I've, only, I've really only read the two most recent issues of S.W.O.R.D., so while I will not spoil the last issue, you should know that Abigail Brand is reaching beast levels of evil and amorality. And I'm personally not sure whether Storm is the best political leader, but whatever. Two great points. Two great points there. Uh, Brand is uh, being quite immoral, right? Um, I, we don't know what she answers to, who she answers to, if what she's doing is... That's not necessarily against any laws, and uh, uh, you got to figure that she probably adheres to Krakoan laws, and there isn't any such law stating, you know, thou, sh- thou shall not block a call to Alpha Flight, <laughs> you know. And although in blocking a call to Alpha Flight, and therefore also blocking calls to the Avengers and other superhero entities on Earth, uh, they she may be causing more death, right? As little as I care for current year Avengers, I mean, I can't deny that they are effective at what they do. So you're better off having them <laughs> on your side than not. So, uh, yeah, uh, Abigail Brand is being very self-serving, but it is in the service of Krakoan uh, politics. So, I mean, it's one of those weird wobbly lines, right? As for Storm being the best political leader... I also agree. Um, now, when you think about Storm, it's I think about when you take someone, a character, and you kind of distill them down to their baser elements, right? You think about a character in the terms of like a simple phrase that describes them. And I've talked about this with Nightcrawler and how people go, I love swashbuckling Nightcrawler, despite the fact that we never, ever see this guy swashbuckle or buckle a swash, right? But that's the... That's the base element of Nightcrawler's character that's kind of glommed onto people's, you know, hearts. With Storm, it's all about, like, the goddess, right? So when you think about Storm as a distillation of a character, it's, well, she's this goddess. So on the face of it, she's like the perfect person for this position. Though, as we see in this very issue, when she gets annoyed, she strikes things with lightning. Which I don't know is uh, the best political move, uh, though. I mean, it is Dr. Doom, and who's really going to complain that Dr. Doom was mistreated by another leader? But, yeah, maybe she needs to be a little bit cooler, cooler-headed. I don't know. Uh, Meal continues. I personally find it very amusing when people complain that S.W.O.R.D. is in too many crossovers. Because to me, it makes logical sense. You can't both be imperialistic a-holes who want control over everyone and everything and not be in the crossovers. You can't have your cake and eat it, too. You definitely do have a point, but I do feel like there's also a tipping point in that uh, it's just, it is too many crossovers here. And I think about that in terms of longevity and in terms of fleshing out a cast, because uh, we haven't had the opportunity to really like spend much time with this cast, and it's a pretty big cast, uh, relatively speaking. Here, we've got a lot of characters in this book, and not many of them are getting screen time, and that's unfortunate. I mean, just a little while ago, we had Fabian Cortez kicked out for in favor of an Araco, what's her face, Cora, 
And Korra does show up in this issue, doesn't do a whole heck of a lot. We get like one black balloon from, you know, of dialogue from her, but that's about it. And while this is Marvel and we can always count on there being crossovers constantly going on here, we gotta assume that there'll eventually be a crossover that doesn't include Sword. And when that happens, I don't know how many people are going to return to the book because the book doesn't seem to have its own personality just yet outside of Mysterium. I think we've had two issues so far that haven't been tied into crossovers. The first one was about Mysterium, and the second one was the trial of Fabian Cortez, which I don't even think Fabian Cortez is still a member of this this team or this cast anymore. So I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I, I'm conflicted because uh, while being a part of the—because, I mean, you can't ignore— Intergalactic threats when you're sword And Marvel seems to have Intergalactic threats every half hour On the half hour So it it does stand to reason But in terms of longevity um, And giving this book An identity of its own It's kind of a toughie And it's not like the tie-ins Have made it so these books Are selling much better they're not really going up the charts much, uh, despite being part of, you know, King and Black, which was like the big story. And so I wonder what uh, folks might make of this story when when the crossovers cease, assuming that they do. They may not. We never know. But uh, all that to say, your point is well taken. Emil continues. That being said, I did enjoy what I read. I may not be the biggest fan of any of the characters. However, it will be fun to one day maybe see these characters getting what they deserve, which is retribution. And as fun as that might be, I I think I've yet to see a Bendis Snarkbot uh, get <laughs> get their comeuppance. Uh, I, I don't know that they're being written in a way that's going to facilitate getting comeuppance, because I don't think they think they're doing anything wrong. <laughs> and I think for the most part, I say I think a lot here because I am projecting. Um, the writers agree. The, the writers agree that what they're doing is in the right and... Uh, Rather than being immoral or evil or bad or, uh, you know, uh, self-serving, they're they're just being assertive and sassy and snarky. So, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. But Meal wraps up with, So until we see Iceman and Pyro again, <laughs> be my next lapsed. Huh. Are Iceman and Pyro in one of the books right now? Huh. It's been a little while, hasn't it? Hmm. Anyway, uh, thank you so much for writing in about Sword Meal. I always look forward to hearing your takes on the book. So thank you again. Next up, we got Evan talking about Way of X number two. Evan says, I didn't enjoy this one quite as much as the first issue, though that may be more due to where I think the story may be headed than the overall quality of the storytelling. I was mostly on board, even to the point where Nightcrawler took the gun from Nemesis. It was a powerful moment because he was acknowledging that killing Legion seemed to be the best, perhaps the most righteous, way forward. Stepping aside and letting Nemesis do it would have made him no less culpable, but his know-what-never-mind line, that didn't sit quite well with me. Now what Evan's referring to, if you have uh, not read Way of X number 2, or if you've forgotten the events of Way of X number 2, Nightcrawler, Dr. Nemesis, and Pixie uh, found Legion's brain. That was all that was left of him, was Legion's brain. And in order to give him a resurrection, well, they had to kill the brain. They had to kill him completely so they could uh, allow him to be reborn. And Nemesis was going to go through with it. You know, he had the pistol, he was going to do the deed. But Nightcrawler, who, as we've seen throughout Way of X, and even before Way of X, is very conflicted with his position insofar as faith and beliefs and just his... Uh, It feels like his whole uh, philosophy has kind of been turned on its ear, and rather than allowing Nemesis to pull the trigger, Nightcrawler himself does it. 
yes for the gun and uh, I don't know if this was him attempting to take control Maybe he viewed himself as like a more passive uh, vessel for his faith And in this situation was able to rest a little bit of that control And to do something that up until that point was unthinkable for him uh, Knowing what we know about resurrection in insofar as the Hoxpox books And also maybe knowing a thing or two about, uh, about Legion I, I don't know, we'll, we'll talk more about that uh, Evan continues like you, I'm going to give Spurrier the benefit of the doubt. But this seems like what I feared would be the direction from back in X-Men number 7, Nightcrawler discarding his faith. And you know, it's funny. Um, that line in X-Men number 7, I mean, X-Men number 7, that's the issue of the Crucible, of course. A very challenging issue, a very polarizing issue. Um, one that uh, we still talk about quite frequently here on the show. But the line at the end where Nightcrawler's like, you know what, I'm going to start my own religion... Kind of fell flat, even back then Because it felt like, uh, you know, we just talked about it We just talked about, um, you know, distilling a character down to their baser elements here And for Nightcrawler, for a long time, it was all about buckling that swash Despite the fact that he very seldom buckles swash But post-2000 or so, it was all about, okay, well, Nightcrawler is the Catholic You know, that was his character, that was it To the point where, like, when he was killed during... What was it, Second Coming or Messiah Complex? He was killed during one of those. I don't think anybody noticed. <laughs> just like, oh, Nightcrawler's dead? Okay, you know, nobody really noticed. He was just such a non-entity. In the books, he was just defined by one trait, and that one trait usually kept him off to the sidelines. So I think Hickman's not always a subtle writer. So when you see Nightcrawler and you think, okay, well, he's the religious guy, and then he sees this thing... Like the Crucible, and it's just like, okay, well, how am I going to relate this to religion? I'll just start my own religion Which just doesn't seem natural, it doesn't seem organic It doesn't seem like something Nightcrawler would say uh, Where you would figure he'd look at it and try to contextualize it Or try to just figure out what it means to him You know, faith is something that can be very personal Faith is something that I believe doesn't need to be discussed all the time Because I think everybody has a different take on faith or lack of faith Or anywhere in between Where I don't know that Nightcrawler would be quick to take the pulpit, right? I, I thought that the way they were going to do this was, uh, this was bef Way before Way of X was even announced, right? We heard that Nightcrawler was going to start a religion here And then it kind of just went away And every time I would think about it I would uh, think that maybe he was doing things Kind of being the other Exodus You know, Exodus is being much more um, Evangelical, maybe, in his approach here Where he's literally doing like a twisted Sunday school With the youth of Krakoa here they, You know, they're chanting Pretender, Pretender, Mutant, Mutant Very, um, yeah, very aggressive uh, Take on a faith or a philosophy Where I thought Nightcrawler was going to do something Far more subtle, if anything at all So I don't didn't put too much stock Retroactively, I didn't put too much stock in Hickman's line About starting a religion Because I feel like it was a, a distillation And at the end of the day, it was an afterthought But uh, we'll, we'll see, of course uh, Evan continues Certainly, the changes brought about by Krakoan society Would challenge Nightcrawler and the other Christians' faith But early on, it seemed like faith was being discarded With everything else deemed a human concept Except alcohol but I shouldn't judge an incomplete story, and this one hasn't yet been finished. 
Reading the info page, I presume that is not, which I presume is Nightcrawler's scripture, I was struck by how it seemed to fall in line with the very things he was challenging. I'm not sure if a reference to thoughtless conditioning meant his faith or something else. I think Kurt is absolutely right to question the devaluing of life. And I think, in Legion's circumstance, he made the right call. But Legion's situation, expelled from his own brain and posing an imminent danger to the world at large with those psychic explosions, is not the same as Pixie allowing herself to be gunned down for peer pressure and style points. In this case, there was no other way out. And the fact that Legion resurrected himself, independent of Cerebro, suggests that his new body is inhabited by his authentic self and not the latest electronic backup. Now, there's a lot there. Um, now, I do have my own theories about the uh, the scripture. I, I do feel like this is going to be ultimately the Book of Legion. Um, I've mentioned this during the discussion of uh, Way of X number four, I believe, where I think I think they're setting Legion up to be a martyr, to be a Christ-like figure here. Not exactly sure how I feel about that. I'm not exactly sure... Uh, where it could be headed I mean, if we do have resurrection I don't know if it's I don't know that you can truly be a martyr Unless, I guess, unless you die in other world But even then you come back somehow I'm not sure I feel like uh, and, and you know what, you may be onto something here With Legion resurrecting himself You know, downloading his own essence into the new body here Because maybe Cerebro can't do it Maybe Legion is so powerful or so complex that uh, that Cerebro just doesn't have the the infrastructure or the uh, logistics to have. I mean, he's got all these personalities in him here. How is Cerebro able to keep that all straight? Maybe maybe Legion in and of himself is just way too complex a situation that uh, Cerebro can't can't handle the gig. So maybe Legion does pass during the onslaught special, and when Cerebro tries to bring him back. Can't do it. Maybe that's how you make him a martyr. And again, that's that's a lot of theorizing from me. I have no basis for any of these predictions. It's just, uh, for me, it, it kind of makes sense, at least at the position that we're at right now. Now, as far as Kurt mentioning thoughtless conditioning, I think that was purposely na- left vague and nebulous because I, I think Spurrier uh, thinks enough of the audience to realize that we have our own thoughts. We don't need to be told how to believe and what to think here Spurrier uh, has a way And I mentioned this I think during Way of X number 2 Maybe it was Way of X number 1 Where he'll present you with something uh, We talked about uh, What was it? The Dunbar number or whatever Where it's like you, you find out that there's only so many Personal connections you're able to have Mentally and emotionally Where then you need traditions To build a society All, all that fun stuff here He presents that to us in a way that isn't isn't wagging a finger at us saying, hey, these are the pages of the encyclopedia I read this month, and I'm going to teach you something, like maybe a uh, Ben Percy does. Spurrier, I feel, and again, I don't know Spurrier, so this is fully projection. I feel like he respects our intelligence enough to know that we can make our own decisions, and uh, even when he is educating us, he's doing it in a way that respects us as people who can think, and that can put two and two together without being, you know, led there by the hand. So thoughtless conditioning, well, I'm taking the scenic route here, I apologize. When I see thoughtless conditioning, it's leaving it open for us to interpret. Is the thoughtless conditioning Christianity? Maybe to some people it is, maybe to others it's not. Is it a different religion altogether? Maybe yes, maybe no. 
Is it Krakoan laws? Maybe yes, maybe no. Is it things like uh, turning a blind eye to the crucible? Maybe yes, maybe no. I, I think that it's purposely being left vague, where it's not going to tell you what to think. You know, you can take from it what you want. And uh, personally, I don't know where I fall on that because I feel like it's a lot of a uh, it's 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 a mishmash. It's a lot of the above, right? Uh, because there's truth to all of it here. You could think about people being conditioned in many, many ways. And such a comment coming from a character like Nightcrawler, who, I mean, he has beliefs, he has a philosophy, but he's also questioning various philosophies. His own, perhaps? Krakoa's? Other religions? Other cultures? It's, uh... I think there's a lot there. There's a lot of meat on the bone here, and, um... And and I I, I dig it. I like being able to talk about it and to think about it. Uh, Evan continues... I think all of this could be part of the story, and I'm not sure if Kurt's scripture is intended to represent a step forward or a step back. If he's just pouring the Krakoan Kool-Aid into a religious pitcher, who's to say Kurt has seen the light on his own? Onslaught is a powerful psychic being. Magneto and Charles may not be turning him loose intentionally, but putting Nightcrawler in the right mindset would eliminate a threat to Krakoa, wouldn't it? Now, that's great, great points here. Onslaught as an entity always represents conflict in uh, philosophy, right? From the very start here, it, you know, Onslaught was born out of Charles uh, absorbing or lobotomizing Magneto. We have two people with similar-ish goals, but two very different philosophies and approaches, right? And when those approaches are in a, they're in a vacuum and still disharmonious, chaos ensues. Here, if we bring it into current year, we've got Krakoa that has its own philosophy, its own standing, its own rules. And we're trying to reconcile that with, for lack of a better term, the old philosophies. And I, I only mean old as in not Krakoan. You know, old as in established, not outdated. And we've got a character like Nightcrawler who's trying to see both, have both. Just in, explore and investigate both here And suddenly Onslaught's back Which represents disharmony between philosophies And the chaos that comes from that I mean, I, I don't know where this is headed here But I, I'm loving every second of it I mean, is this a manifestation of Charles and Magneto? Is this a manifestation of something else? Is Onslaught kind of the catch-all for disharmony and chaos? I don't know I don't know, but uh, I trust enough in Spurrier, and I'm loving the Way of X series enough to go all in with it. And uh, I think this is going to be—I think this is going to be very enlightening at the end of the day here. But uh, again, I, I only know what I've read from the first four issues. We still have the fifth issue and the Onslaught special. We will see how it is when uh, when we get there. But I do so appreciate your writing in about this issue. I know it's a, it, this is a challenging subject for some people, and I'm so happy that we're able to uh, discuss and explore these uh, challenging subjects on a, on a silly show about comic books. So thank you so much for facilitating that very fun conversation I had with myself, and I encourage anybody, to, uh, anybody else to write in to discuss this further. And speaking of which, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so several different ways. You could find me at Ace Comics on Twitter, you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. 
For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook at 90s X-Men. We're up to, I think, 64 members now. So thank you all so much for being there. And I look forward to seeing more folks there uh, whenever you feel like, uh, you know, popping over and giving your two cents. I always look forward to hearing from more folks. Uh, finally, for the Chris and Reggie Audio Archives, which now includes a, a year of daily content from me, uh, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And of course, as I say, that's available everywhere that the internet aggregates noise. But that's going to do it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for spending this past year with me. 360... Did we have a leap year this year? I don't remember. Maybe we did. Oh, no, no, we didn't. We did last year, so 365 days. Thank you all so much for spending that time with me. I really, really appreciate it. And I hope you come back tomorrow for the one year of X-Lapsed celebration, which, uh, as per usual, will be kind of low-key. And when I'm done recording it, I'll probably sit there waiting for the confetti to drop from the ceiling and the music to begin. And, uh, well, that's not going to happen. So we will uh, <laughs> we'll take it as we get it. But one last time, thank you all so much for allowing me to keep you company this year. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.